Welcome to the Growth Lab. I am Tej Singh, personal growth enthusiast, world traveler, sales professional on a spiritual journey to live my highest expression. This podcast is meant for individuals looking to evolve in all aspects of their lives. I interview leaders and coaches that have a passion to grow beyond the status quo and expand into their highest potential. Let's dive into it as we help you get 1% better with every episode. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to announce our guest for episode 12 of the Growth Lab, Charlie Jeffy. Charlie is a crisis counselor and best-selling co-author of Turning Crisis into Success, a book to help entrepreneurs overcome challenges while keeping their shit together. She's an award-winning Google strategist and changemaker, and she recently received a master's degree in counseling and clinical psychology from Columbia University where she focused her thesis on media and suicide prevention. In this jam-packed episode, we cover Charlie's initial journey in finding identity and accomplishments, powerful learnings having dealt with near-death illness, sexual assault, anxiety, depression, and PTSD, leaving Google to study and travel through Southeast Asia, her current work in crisis counseling and suicide prevention, and much more. This was an absolutely powerful and inspiring conversation with Charlie. We dive deep into hard topics that are often overlooked and will absolutely challenge your frame of thinking. Listening to her story will give you the anchor to live fully every day and treat every day as a gift. Let's dive right in. I'm really excited for this episode. This is going to be a special one. Now, Charlie and I actually met at Mind Valley University. Uh, and this is a common theme among some of the guests that have been on the on the Growth Lab. And again, Mind Valley, for people that don't know, is a transformational program, you know, held in a different country every year. The university part of it. Um, there's about thousand people that come from fifty different countries. So very unique set of people with unique backgrounds. Um, and it's funny, Charlie and I actually met. Was it a Pirates of the Caribbean party, right? In in a ship. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, it was it was in a ship uh, that that used to be an actual ship, right? And they turned it into sort of a, a event center. Uh, and yeah, gosh, I'm like going back into my brain. <laughs> um, recalling that. Yeah, and we had a conversation for like an hour. And to be honest, Charlie, like I don't remember all the contents of the conversation, but what I do remember, it felt like a vortex in the middle of this party. And it was it was a super deep conversation. I remember there was like music blaring in the background and people are dancing everywhere. We're we're, we're (laughs) in the middle of the dance floor. And I mind you, I love dancing. So it's and I also love deep conversations. So I love that we just like went into this conversational vortex on the middle of a dance floor. Yeah, I, I, we must have been yelling at each other because the music was so loud. But I remember it being like super deep and we were talking about all these deep topics. Uh, so I'm really excited about this episode because I know, you know it's going to be a really deep conversation and a special one. Um, now, where I want to start, Charlie, is, is you have many titles, right? You, you're a writer, yeah. uh, you're a speaker, you're a crisis counselor, you're an advocate for mental and emotional health. Also... Uh, you know, we were talking about this uh, in the pre-planning, pre-planning call that you're also working on a suicide prevention documentary, which I really want to get to as well. But before we cover all of that, Charlie, uh, let's back up, right? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and start with your journey to where you are today. And really, you know, what are some of the things that have led you to become the person you are today? 
Oh, loaded question. I love it. It is. It is. Uh, You know, it's interesting when I think about where I am today and the pieces of life I'm most excited about, the roots of it actually really come from really challenging, hard experiences. Um, Mm. And so I actually, I love that personally. Like, I think when we look at the field of suicide prevention and mental and emotional health, Uh, those of us who are huge advocates and who are really active in that, oftentimes it's the result of our own journey and our own struggles. And so for me, I can be a little bit stubborn. Um, (laughs) Like I I like, you know, not always, but so I say, you know, sometimes people get hints from the universe. Um, I needed more of a frying pan in my (laughs) case. And so the work that I'm doing now is very much the result of me just really having a mindset growing up of, you know, needing to be the best, the most respected, the thing that other people aspired to. And so I had this idea of what I was supposed to be, you know, whether it was always straight A's or the hardest university or the you know, biggest name companies. Um, and I like did very well at that, but uh, was not very happy uh, at all, which is not a unique story. I was trying to fit myself into what I thought I should be rather than trying to figure out who I really was. And so when I look at the times where I've been you know, physically quite sick or near death ill or mentally struggling to the point where my life was in danger um, or really burnt out work-wise, in a moment, those were horribly challenging things. But now I look at the greatest gifts of what I get to do in my life and what makes me most passionate. Um, and I wouldn't have that without those hard places. So I'm down to go, I know that's sort of like a very broad vague and I'm totally down to get into the details, but yeah. I guess that'll be your, your platter. Tell me where you'd like to go. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, and when, you, when you say that, right, you really mean it. When you say you wanted to be the best at different things and work at the best you know, companies, go to the best universities, you really have done that. And then also on the other end of that, you, know, you having faced obstacles, you know, that's just, you're not just saying that, you have faced a lot of obstacles. So I want to get into both of those points. Perhaps we can back up and, and talk about, you know, you've, you've been to Georgetown and you worked at Google, you know, what, what did that look like? And again, the reason I want to go there, because it kind of shows the audience that you can have those things, but still not feel fulfilled, because there are people that want to, you know, go to that university and then go to that college and nothing wrong with that or go to that, that job working at a, a big company, nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, it has to be really aligned aligned to to your core right so let's talk about let's start there yeah let's start there thank you so (laughs) so yeah so I did I did my undergrad at Georgetown um and I was sort of on the track to go towards state department I had lived in Israel uh, worked as an EMT and an English teacher I spoke Hebrew I was studying Arabic I was like let's solve peace in the Middle East yeah Um, which I'm still really I'm very passionate about that um and really excelled at Georgetown and I had been in a really bad rugby accident my freshman year, um, broke my leg very badly and got some complications uh, in my lungs that nearly killed me. Uh, And they're actually the same complications that kill COVID patients. Mm. Um, And so when you talk about fighting for your life, um, that was a very visceral, violent experience for me. And that, that changed me in a really deep way. And it wasn't right then. I didn't, some people come back, you know, near death and be like, I saw the light and I, I know what I'm doing. And for me, I doubled down. I was like, no, I, I searched for identity and accomplishments. And so, yeah, I was 
uh, as I was navigating PTSD, I had like an, I was producing a web series at the Washington Post. I was finding all of these achievements to try and fill myself rather than pursuing them because they're actually what I wanted or because it was for the purpose of doing it. I was trying, I think really to fill a void. And so I ended up taking medical leave uh, or withdrawing from classes, really kind of pulling away um, from a lot of what I was doing and didn't go down the State Department route, which was, I think, a good thing um, for me and just my, my personality and, and what I want. And so, yeah, after, after school, I didn't know what I wanted to do and had done some journalism uh, and ended up at, at BBC for a little while. But I just really knew that pretty early on it wasn't for me because the mission there is to inform. Um, and I was like, I don't, I don't want to inform. I want to transform. Mm. Um, I want to have that vested interest in, in that type of outcome. And so I was like, okay, social entrepreneurship. Um, you know, that, that sounds like that might be my path. So let me study business. Um, let me understand business so that I can use that to change the world for the better. And, and so I went to Google um, and I was doing online advertising and did a lot of these side projects that I was really passionate about in diversity and inclusion and foreign policy and social impact. Um, and eventually I burnt out and it wasn't because of Google. Um, for me, it was very much years coming up, right? It was all that time that I had done that repressing and that burying. Um, but when we take things that we're not comfortable with or we don't like or struggles we don't want to face and we bury it, uh, oftentimes we don't realize we're just we're planting toxic seeds and we might not have to deal with it today but those things are going to bloom it might be a year it might be five years it might be 50 years um, but those things eventually come back and I feel very lucky that it happens relatively quickly for me yeah I, I, I the way I see it is oh I could have ended up in my 30s 40s 50s asking how did I get here and instead, I was in my 20s, and my body really just started, and my mind started shutting down. Um, and so that was re really gave me the opportunity. It forced me to step away. Um, but then it gave me that forced space. And with that forced space and starting to do the work on myself um, in a really big way, which I'm totally happy to dive into all those <laughs> different pieces, wow. uh, I found that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really passionate about storytelling uh, and about mental and emotional health in that journey. And I had always kind of seen it as a little bit fluffy. Um, I was like, oh, but like, that's not the hard thing. That's like, not what everyone else is trying to do. So I wanna do what everyone else is trying to do. But in reality, that doesn't make it soft. That doesn't make it fluffy. That actually makes it even more gritty or even more powerful. Uh, and once I stopped trying to be the thing that other people respected, and started to try to find within myself what lights me up, what makes me passionate, what matters to me, opportunities started to show up that I couldn't have dreamt of. Um, like, if you told me I'd be doing the things today that I'm doing, I would be like, do you, like, what, what are you smoking? <laughs> um, and so, I, but I couldn't be more grateful for it. Yeah. And it doesn't mean the hard times have stopped. It just, my relationship is different with it. And now the hard experiences to me, I see is, as opportunities for meaning. Hmm. That's fascinating. You know, some of the, some of the pieces that you talked about where, you know, your, your, your body started to shut down and that's, that's, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've heard different stories and obviously I've had my own version of my hero's journey, uh, you know, where I've kind of, uh, you know, went through the, the journey of 
getting the things that I thought would get me the respect. And, and a, a lot of what you were sharing was really resonating, obviously different circumstances, but you know, similar breakthroughs where you go after the things because you know that you think that's going to get you the, the respect, right? And then once you get there, you find it's that, you know, you feel the most empty in some ways. Um, so, so I love that part of it. And also what you mentioned, you didn't want to inform, you wanted to transform. I thought that was beautiful. Uh, you know, the, the transformation, you know, part of it. Uh, and then kind of moving on, you know, one of the things you mentioned is, you know, the toxic seeds that you plant in the past, right? They're going to bloom in the future. I love that. Uh, just, just how important that is. And it works both ways, right? Beautiful seeds will bloom in that way too. So, you know, what did that experience look like for you? Was it that, um, was it the accident that you had and the problem with your lungs? Was it that, you know, what did that, how did it manifest itself? And, you know, how did you know, like, what was that moment where you're like, okay, I need to course correct. Like, this is in my path. Yeah. Well, well, I would say there was more than one of those, <laughs> one of those moments. Uh, so for me, I would say that that was the biggest one for me. That was a couple months after I got out of the hospital, right? When I got out of the hospital, I sort of was like, okay, I'm back doing my thing. Um, but I developed some very intense post-traumatic stress disorder from those suffocation attacks, from those experiences in the hospital where I was, I had a team of doctors that would run to my bedside and just stand there because there was nothing they could do. Uh, and just the violence of fighting for my own life, it, it felt like it had broken me. Um, and so I buried that and eventually that popped up a couple months later. And so there was that first really intense experience of PTSD. But I think sometimes when we have those extreme challenging experiences, we can discount the other challenging pieces that don't quite hit that bar. Like after that, I was like, oh, I'm not dying in a hospital. So everything's fine. Um, and that's not, that's not true. Uh, and so that was one piece of it, but there was, you know, there, there was a couple of years where there was just a lot of really intense challenges. I'd been sexually assaulted during my recovery. Um, and luckily, you know, faced that much quicker, um, than I did some of the other issues, but I really looked at how do I get back to functioning? Like, how can I get back to doing, achieving and being productive? And that's not getting back to being able to be productive is not the same thing as healing. And oftentimes, as long as we can get back to doing the things, I know at least for me, I was like, oh, then I'm fine. Um, and so it was a number of different pieces that all kind of came together. And I had been quite sick in college after my accident. There was a lot of different pieces there. And so the, the time where it came up where my life really changed wasn't when everything happened. I would say it was you know, maybe five years later when I was working at Google and had on paper, my life looked perfect. Um, you know, I had the great job and I was doing you know, a lot of good for the world, um, living in a great city, living with best friends. Um, and my body started shutting down and I started experiencing a lot of anxiety and depression to the point where, you know, doctors were very worried about my safety, um, physically and mentally. And so that was the greatest gift because it forced me to step away. Uh, and I had had the example of a friend who'd quit a job and gone traveling. And I was like, you know what? I think it's time for that. I was like, I'll go, I'll travel for four months uh, and then I'll come and find a different job in Silicon Valley that makes me happy. Um, and I, I never went back, which was perfect for me and for other people. You know, it is the place where they want to be. But it was when I bought a one-way ticket to Myanmar and went backpacking through Southeast Asia 
and had some time where I didn't have a plan and I wasn't being productive and I was just seeing what was going to unfold. And that was the life-changing shift. That was when I you know, studied yoga, not as a way to manage my anxiety and be skinny while I did it, but, um, <laughs> but where it became this deep spiritual practice and this curiosity of exploring myself um, and exploring other cultures and ways of life that didn't fit into that idea of what makes a person successful. And I would say that was when I look at my big turning moment, like that was when everything changed for me. And it was just like going over the top of a roller coaster. And then all of a sudden there was just inertia that pushed, that pushed me into these different directions. So I landed in Australia, ran a yoga school with a friend uh, that I'd met while I was traveling. And then the Australian government changed visa laws. And so I like to stay, I was invited not to stay uh, and came back. So all these different like bumps and turns actually created um, for like exactly where I'm supposed to be. Hmm. So it landed me back in the States. I, uh, I moved in with my parents unemployed at, and single at 27. And I thought that was shocking. No idea that um, <laughs> now at 30 during pandemic, I would be doing the same thing. Um, so life has definitely not turned out the way I expected, but, um, I think in a really good way. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's so fascinating. I'm, I mean, the way you say it, right. It's, it sounds nonchalant, but you've been through a lot. It's just absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, all the challenges that you faced and, you know, you and I were talking, uh, you know, previously and, and just so inspiring to hear all the things that you've been through and then, and the person you've become because of it. Right. And, and, um, you know, as we look back to that period, you said of about five years prior to that, you know, pivot point happening when you are walking away from, from Google, like what kept you going, right? Like, you know, in, in those moments, what was it that kept you saying, okay, I'm going to keep just chugging along. Cause you, you know, a lot of the things you mentioned, a lot of people, uh, you know, would lose hope completely or just say, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore, you know? So like, what was it, what was it that kept you going? Well, I would also say I did lose hope. I did say, I don't want to do it anymore. There was points in college where I remember I, I had a bunk bed, um, you know, with a, with, with a friend and I was on the bottom bunk. Um, and I remember I taped notes for reasons to stay alive and reasons to get out of bed. And I don't remember a lot of the ones I wrote. The one that sticks out in my mind is I'd had a classmate uh, named Matthew, who had died of cancer uh, before I'd gone to college. And sometimes the way I got myself out of bed was through guilt. I looked up at that note uh, with Matthew's name on it. And I said, you know, he wanted to be here and he didn't get the chance to. Mm. Um, and so I can't, I have a chance. And if I waste it, that's disrespecting his memory. Um, now, mind you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go suggest that other people do that. Um, because I don't think that we need to be guilted into it. And I think the honest answer is sometimes we need to stop. Like sometimes we need to let other people hold us um, and to accept help. And I think had I been a little bit braver, I would have stopped more and I would have asked for more help sooner. Um, and so I think when I look at it, some of the pieces that people point to as like, this is the thing I respect most is actually for me, I look at, Oh, like if I was stronger, I would have gone slower and I would have stopped and I would have done less. Um, but it's very nuanced and it's very complicated. But that being said, I would say, you know, I went into therapy uh, and 
I was very resistant. Um, when I first, I remember when my therapist had told me, you know, okay, so, you know, diagnosis, de uh, severe depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, here's some medication. Um, and at that point in time, I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. Um, not, again, something I would never say today. Um, and she goes, okay, well, you know, let's maybe, let's talk about those panic attacks. Um, you know, how many you're having a day. And I just go, oh, no, no, those aren't panic attacks. Those are involuntary breathing experiences. Like I was, I was so committed to the story that I was okay, that I was willing to sacrifice just about anything. But it was, it was those baby steps. I think oftentimes we can be in that hard spot and say, how do I transform it? How do I get to that other place now? And the tough reality is oftentimes it takes a very long time. And so the question isn't, how do I get to that endpoint? But how do I get those breaths of fresh air? that keep me from, from drowning, that allow me to keep maybe feeling underwater, but to keep going. And so I think for me, you know, things like family and connection are huge. Um, but a lot of the things that I relied on are not things I would recommend other people. I absolutely, you know, self-medicated um, and used substances in a way that were not healthy. Um, but at the same time, I look back on it and I'm like, that helps keep me alive. Sometimes it's numbing and avoiding, um, but sometimes it's how do I how do I hold on? Like how do I be able to get to the next day? And so I'm a huge believer in harm reduction in that sense of how do we look at all the different coping skills that are out there to be able to keep going. And so I think a lot of the greatest lessons, like there they were, it was months and years after where I had those aha moments, mm. but. I look back and, you know, I had a, a great, I had a couple great professors. I had a couple people looking out for me who really made the difference. And I think for so many of us, it, that one person who shows that they care and who shows that they're not afraid of the train wreck that we are, um, that can be the difference that lets us hold on for another hour, for another day, for another week. And sometimes it's a matter of holding on long enough to do that change and do that work and lower our expectations of what needs to happen right now. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, you know, I, it's so interesting because what you do today, you know, is, is directly correlated to those five years, right? And all the challenges that you went through. And, and that's beautiful because it reminds me of, of, of you know, your biggest trauma in life becomes your biggest gift. And, and, you know, that is really manifested for you today. And we'll, we'll get into that, right? Because how that time and frame is what's guiding your your future today right and obviously it's it's not one that you know everyone should go through voluntarily but you had to you had to go through that right because that was your in some ways that's that's the circumstances that life presented to you but you've turned them into opportunity and you mentioned that right turning crisis uh in, into opportunity so that's that's beautiful uh so let's, let's follow the journey and I want to get into what you do today, but you know, so you left to Southeast Asia, you left Google and then you fascinating that you started a, a yoga school in Australia. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. Well, so the, the yoga school already existed and a okay. dear friend and teacher of mine, Emma Power had created the school. Um, and so I had initially just offered to help her out with some of the business operations, wanted to go through courses. Uh, and not surprisingly, one thing led to another and was just, we were sort of like running it together. She had, uh, she became pregnant with her first child. And so I ended up taking over a lot of the reins. And so what's interesting is, you know, I never thought of it as like those five years, although that's, that's definitely a good framework. Yeah. Um, but it's not like I got, I left, I did my 
eat, pray, love journey. And then, and then, and then I was in this new phase where like, there aren't problems. I still, there's still remnants, you know, I, I was very to, I guess, jump forward a little bit. You know, I had been very sick in March of April of this past year, likely with COVID. Um, and for me, you know, there was PTSD that came back up and over the years, depression has come back up. So it's not that these challenges disappear, but my tool belt I have to approach them has expanded so much that I am able to get far much more meaning out of it and I can come back from it quicker and I can dance with it a little bit more. Um, so I don't like to set the expectation of like, oh, it was bad and now it's good. It was like, okay, that yes, but there's also so much nuance to it. But, yeah. but going through, going through uh, the tantric yoga school was, was very life-changing for me uh, in a number of ways. One was I was very uncomfortable talking about my own sexuality. Um, for a very long time, having experienced multiple assaults um, and having really buried them, there was so much there was so much shame there for me. And today, I'm very proudly queer and bisexual. But for a long time after I was assaulted, my mindset was, I just want to be normal, right? Like I just want to fit that box. I just want to be like everyone else. And I had no idea that my normal was not everyone else's normal. And so I was trying, I didn't realize I was trying to put myself in a box that I was never designed to fit in. And in going through this tantra yoga school where there's so much focus on sort of our energetic system, but also in being able to get in touch with our own sexuality, not necessarily even with other people, just in terms of our own energetic systems. That for me was very, very jarring and very uncomfortable um, and incredibly healing because I had such safe spaces and incredible teachers to help guide me through it. And, you know, that sexuality was a very small sort of piece of what I focused on. A lot of people hear Tantra and they think that's sort of everything. And it's like, no, it's so much more rich and complex than that. But when I started doing a lot of the more energetically focused work and breath work and, and yoga and meditation in a very disciplined way, my body transformed. And so I had been told in college that I would ha never have normal muscle function without Parkinson's medication. It was, I was lucky. It wasn't degenerative, um, but it was going to be a forever thing. And mind you, I still have these triggers in my body. It's not like the neurological disorder went away, um, but I was actually able to stop taking the medication. And that was a wild experience for me. It was liberating. It was so exciting. You know, the, the boundaries I was told for myself didn't exist, but it was also terrifying. Um, and the way I almost think of it is like, you know, it, that spark of curiosity started a structure fire and it felt like doubting, like, what is real? Like, what do I believe in? Um, and that was really, really hard um, and really beautiful. And I think I stand so much more firmly today because of, you know, you could call it a depressive episode, um, but because of that really deep questioning of everything in my life. And so for, again, from, from the outside being like, oh my gosh, you got off this medication. That's amazing. Like, yes, it is. And it can also be really hard. Like the, the good things aren't purely good and pleasant. Um, and the bad things are also not purely horrible. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I love how you walked through 
you know, that piece and the emphasis on that, it, it doesn't stop, right? Like life's challenges continue to come up. The capability that you have to handle them changes and, and you have a, a broader tool set, uh, which, which is amazing, right? And I love that perspective and thank you for clarifying that uh, because it is true, right? Something else always comes up, but then how you manage that is, is different through your experiences and, and, and what you've learned. Um, so within, within Tantra itself and when you were, uh, you know, when you went to Southeast Asia. So like speak to that a little bit because even my understanding yeah. and a lot of people's understanding of Tantra is the, the sexuality piece of it, but what's your understanding of it and, and does it play a part in your life today? Yeah, absolutely. So what I would say is a very kind of reduction, not reductionist, a very simplistic way to describe it is if we look at the yogis, right? Like traditionally back in the day, you can think of, you know, the very aesthetic, very much push away the world. Um, go inward to reach enlightenment and all of the physical yoga is just a preparation for meditation to getting to this enlightened samadhi space and the tantrics were kind of like the rebels of spirituality which I really enjoy because they said hey we we want to go to that same place but we don't believe that we were put on this earth um, with all of these things around us just to deny them and so I see tantra really as this mindset of how do we use every aspect of life as a source of spiritual evolution. How can the way we eat, our relationships, our sexual lives, our pain, every piece of it, how can we be present with it in a way that allows us to grow and evolve through it? And so that's very much how I try to approach my life. Um, and I've been lucky to have some incredible teachers. And even though I've had incredible teachers and I've studied it, I still view myself as a beginner right? Like there's, it's, there's so much depth to it. And there's, you know, unfortunately today, a lot of people who take that sexuality piece um, and really sort of focus on that in a way that's not safe and not held. And there's so much ab abuse and scandal that does happen. And so I think when we can find teachers in spaces who are truly authentic um, and who are really committed to creating uh, a held space for people to evolve at their own pace. Um, it's so beautiful. But I think like anything, we can, we look at any tool and we want to see it as good or bad and any tool can cause harm. And, and so I think really understanding that was, was important to me, but I, I studied yoga with, with some incredible teachers in Thailand, um, which, who were more traditional and that really opened, opened my eyes to a lot of this work. And then going to Australia with, 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 as I mentioned, Emma Power um, and a couple of other incredible teachers is where I, I started to dig in a little bit deeper. But there are, there are tantrics who are celibate. Um, so when we talk about sexual energy, it's not necessarily that there's any physicality to it. It's just talking about a type of energy within our system. And when we look at, you know, there's a reason when we look at religions that it's something that there's so many rules around. There's so much strict control over because it's powerful and because it can control us in huge ways. And so one approach is to try and put it in a box or repress it or control it. Um, and another approach is to say, how can we harness this? How can we use this? How can we see this as sacred? And I don't say that to dis or, or put down any religions that do have, have lines around sexuality. I think really when we look at any system or framework of how we want to live our lives, uh, it's looking at what is, what is the intention behind it? What is the meaning behind it? Um, and how does it work for us? For some people, 
being having sort of modest clothing or strict sexual rules is incredibly liberating um, and empowering and helps people on their journey forward. And if that's the case, amazing. And for some people, being able to have expression and that type of embodiment um, is, is the path for them. So I don't think there's ever a right or a, a wrong path. Um, there are some wrong paths, right? Like abuse, things <laughs> like that. But um, yeah. all that to say is it's, it's, it's really about like what's the right tool for our own needs. And it's really easy to look outside for that but no one else can tell us what's right for our systems. No one else, we're the experts in our own experience. And so I think the question becomes, how do I get to know myself? How can I start to have that level of discernment? Yeah, yeah. You know that I, I love the part that you talked about, you know, the, the yogis versus, you know, tantra and, and being even more involved in life, right? Life becoming your yoga practice. Uh, and, and, you know, a little bit of that was, uh, my path too, where I, you know, I went to Thailand and, and different places and different spiritual centers and spent a lot of time kind of reflecting on life and really uh, thinking about who I am and, you know, in those exclusive areas and places. But then after a while, I kind of became that, how can I be so involved in life that everything I'm doing becomes the practice itself and, and, you know, playing that game and that dance with life, you know, all the time. And, and that's, that's yeah. so beautiful. I, I love that way of approaching life. And to your point, all these things in life that are presented, right, they're there for a reason. And life becomes your biggest teacher. Uh, and everything that's being presented is there. Uh, and if you look at it that way, uh, you know, you can, you can learn something from it. Um, and you, and the, did, you, did you have a thought there? Yeah, when it was <laughs> just as you were saying that, it, a lot of yes. Uh, <laughs> and also, it resonates so deeply with me. I've done, you know, I've done long silent retreats. I've done so much spiritual work uh, or not so much, depends who you ask, you know, yeah. to some people it's a very <laughs> small amount. Um, yeah. But for me, when I look at what is the most sacred work I do in this world, it's crisis counseling, it's suicide prevention. It's getting to be with people in moments where they're trying to stay alive and it is not easy or where they're trying to die, but a part of them wants to stay alive and I get to be in that hard part. And so I think it's really about, for me, expanding what we define as spiritual. Because some mm -hmm. people don't, don't look at the, that and see that as spirituality. But, you know, a, a mother or a father or a parent in, or a caregiver doesn't have to be a parent with a child and helping a child through those challenging moments. Or a teacher being present with a student. There's, I think, opening our eyes to what can count as sacred and what can count as spiritual makes life so much more meaningful and we get to decide i know I, I i have friends who are just like surfing is my spirituality that is my most ecstatic present elevated state and and so it's it's fun it becomes a game uh in terms of how do we want to evolve ourselves and for some people using words like god or divinity works and for some people it doesn't but i think it's sort of yeah it's like a kid in a candy store being like how do we want to design it yeah yeah, and and the and the part around crisis counseling. Let's get into that a little bit because yeah, and 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 the whole concept of turning what you do into spirituality and expanding the the perspective on it. It's beautiful, right? Because then the work becomes sacred, and 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 your purpose is in that, right? Your the spiritual practice, as much devotion that you have towards that, whatever that may look like, then that that thing that you're doing becomes, uh, you know, your 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 spiritual practice and where you put in that same level of of uh, 
authenticity and same level of, of effort into that. Right. So let's talk to the, the crisis counseling. Obviously, you know, we've, you know, you've shared with us your story thus far, right. And, you know, you, you can connect the dots of why this is so important to you, but talk about that. How did it become clear to you that this is something that you really want to do? Um, and obviously I think you came back and you went to Columbia to, to get a, get your master's in this. So, so tell us about that. How did this all come about and, and your perspective on this? Yeah, well, to be totally upfront, I went to Columbia as more of like a, I, I got my master's as like a plan C, uh, right? <laughs> like I, I, I couldn't stay in Australia. And then I had this exciting job back in Silicon Valley that fell through and I had applied to grad school. So it wasn't like it had been my first choice. Um, but I, I did have this feeling like I don't want to go to New York. And I'm this grad school is kind of like, not a full body. Yes, I was like, but it just sort of feels like this is where I'm supposed to go. And I don't know why. Uh, and that very much feels like that's, that's how things developed. And so I started grad school. I lived by myself for the first time. I had all this reading, which happened by myself. So much of the work was solitary. And I was just feeling really isolated. And I started slipping into a depression. Uh, and at that time was when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening. Um, and internally, I was like, oh, I've done my work. Like, I'm fine. Um, like, I'll help other people. And anytime anyone says like, oh, I've done my work, I can help others, others need it, not me, is like the first, not first, but it's this big red flag, right? Yeah. Like anytime we think our work is done, it's the first sign that our work is not done. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, so I was having some PTSD flare-ups um, and it was, I was just in a really tough place. And I actually saw Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye. I'm not a big social media person, but I happened you know, to go on Instagram and see a, a, a post from him about uh, suicide prevention. Um, and so I was like, oh my gosh, like this sounds like all the things that I, you know, I'm looking for. I want this type of community and I want this type of hands-on work. And when we talk about suicidality, people can sometimes think of it as like an on-off and that's, that's, it, there's a whole spectrum of, of suicidal ideation. Everything from like very passive, just like thoughts coming in, like, oh, what if I did that to going out and acting on an attempt? And there's so many pieces in between. And so I had decided to kill myself when I was 13. And I'm so happy that I didn't, uh, that I changed my mind. Uh, but I didn't talk about it for 14 years. I held so much shame around it and, and very much buried it. And I had only just opened up about it maybe six months before then, uh, before this point in time. But to me, I looked at it and said, okay, I know that place. Um, so that maybe that can help me be with these people. And I wanted something that was hands-on in addition to grad school. Um, and so I just, from the very moment that I saw, saw it and it made sense, it just, I felt in my body, like this is a, this is a full body. Yes. Uh, and I went through the training and I started and I just, I absolutely, I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, and, and so it's this thing that I kind of do on the side, um, but I say, you know, it's, it's my soul work that I get to do on the side. And I would say, especially, you know, right now with the state of the country and the world, when we are so isolated, it feels important now more than ever. And my approach to it, you know, I have, I was trained for it. I have, I also have my master's in, and, and I have a lot of the intellectual pieces, but for me, the lived experience is such an important teacher. Um, and when I look at the moments where it has been, you know, very life or death, very extreme. That's not all the calls by any means. But when I look at those moments, 
it's my lived experience that I think really allows me to show up in the most powerful way that informs so much of, of what I do. And a lot of my approach, there's different pieces, but for, for some people, it's very much just how can I pour love to this, into this person? How can I reflect back and be with this person so present um, and see all of the pain and all of the shit? Um, sorry, <laughs> but, but like that, to be with that intensity and to not have it push me away or be hard, but, and to not discount it. Um, I think a lot of times today we can get into a place of almost toxic positivity or spiritual bypassing this idea of like, oh, it's hard, but like everything's, but like, but I'm just going to like go past it. Um, like, no, sometimes we have to sit in that hard place. And so I think being able to be with someone in that hard place um, and have that be okay, uh, and to help someone feel loved when they, when they feel like the only option is death. Um, like that to me is, is the most beautiful thing I get to do. I feel lucky because I get to learn from all of the people that I get to sit and be with. And, and so, yeah, so I just, I, I, I am incredibly grateful um, for the work. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes there's not mutual gratitude. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's very much a battle, but, um, but I think that there's a beauty to seeing other people and to allowing ourselves to be seen. Mm-hmm. And for those people who do choose to call a hotline, I, I see it as a gift. You're allowing me to be a part of a horrifically challenging moment. Um, how beautiful to give me that vulnerability. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And it's, it's so beautiful. And your passion comes through your voice of how important this is to you, which is, which is just beautiful to see. I love when, you know, people are doing something that really lights them up and it's really connected to their soul, you know, and, and I can feel that, you know, as you were talking through that. Um, now, if, if, you know, as we were on this subject, if someone, you know, is, is having depressive thoughts or kind of feeling, you know, having some, and you said it's a big spectrum, right? It isn't just the, you know, the A or B, right? It isn't turn on or turn off. If somebody's kind of dealing with depressive thoughts or dealing with suicidal thoughts, what would you recommend as, as, a, as a first step, right? Is it to go seek help? You know, what, what, from, from you, you know, what should a person like that, what should it do as a first step? Yeah, well, so I would say there's no one first step that needs sure. to happen. I'm, I'm all about that, you know, uh, different, different uh, strokes for different folks. But sure. I, do think, I do think that asking for help is so powerful. And if we're not ready to disclose what we're experiencing, just allowing ourselves to have human connection. And some of us are very lucky and we can turn to people in our lives and ask for it. Um, and the reality is some people that I talk to don't have people they can turn to like that is a reality for some people and i think that's why hotlines are so important because there's a whole group of strangers who are sitting there waiting to take your phone call wanting to sit with you wanting to hold space for you um but i think i i think that when we're in that space asking for help is so important but also it's important to talk about the responsibility on everyone else right um because i know for me when i was in that space i didn't ask for help um, I didn't allow anyone to see where I was. I didn't follow any of the advice that I would give other people, really. Um, and I was very lucky that I had a dear auntie in my life who was able to see me and and to reach me, not through fear and not through judgment, because I was a hard person to be around. Um, and I would say a lot of people who are experiencing depression and suicidality 
we're not fun to be around. Um, you know, we're not easy. Sometimes we hide it and, 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 and can adjust and people can't tell. Um, but I would say to be able for those who are not the person in trouble, um, but who might be worried about someone to be able to recognize that challenging behavior, um, or things that are people who are acting out or hurting others, like those can be signs that someone needs help or when someone is withdrawn, um, or if someone who's usually really enjoys being around people all of a sudden is quite isolated, those shifts in behavior, um, being able to see it not as just annoying or inconvenient, but as a question, not an accusation, you need help, something's wrong, but to be able to hold space and to let someone know, at least for me, when I was in that space, I was lucky to have an auntie who sat me down and said, hey, I can see that you're in pain and that's cool. I was just wondering if I could sit with you in it. And for me, that was huge because everyone else around me wanted me to change. And I needed to change, but I wasn't going to be able to change by someone telling me to do so. What I needed is someone who could be unfazed by me and sit with me and say, nothing needs to change. I love you just how you are. Can I be with you in this? And that connection can be life-changing because the isolation is so scary um, and so hard. And so bringing it back to the people who are having a hard time, you know, we, we all have different coping mechanisms. So the first thing I would say is if there are things that give you that breath of fresh air, really evaluating and seeing what are those things and how can I use that to get that breath of fresh air, but also knowing that we need to do hard work um, and, and it's not easy and it doesn't change overnight. And asking for help is not a burden on other people. Asking for help is a gift. And sometimes it takes some discernment to figure out, okay, who are, who are the people can, that can receive that? Because some people might not be in the place to give us the gift uh, and to accept the gift of being in hard places together. And so that would be my biggest thing uh, is how can I help myself? How can I allow others to help me? And how can I also realize that this is not permanent? Whatever I'm feeling, no matter if it's amazing or horrible, it's going to change, especially when it feels like it won't. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. And I, you know, as you were going through uh, the piece of, of going through the hard place, right, rather than trying to bypass it, uh, that's such an important point because when you are in the you know, growth space or spiritual space, you do find a lot of people thinking they can just bypass and just get through the challenge or that, that pain that they're feeling. So the healing happens through, and I love um, you're sure about seeking for help. And this thread has come up uh, a couple of times in, in previous episodes where folks have mentioned this, this taboo that we have in our society about mental health and seeking for help, you know, and, and I, and I think it's changing over time because it's becoming, there's a lot more awareness around it. Right. And, and, you know, people, I, I hear it come up in conversations. Um, so that's beautiful. Thank, thank you so much for sharing that, Charlie. And I think, um, you know, if, if somebody's even, um, facing any, it doesn't have to be you know, kind of the extreme societal thoughts, but even if you're feeling down thoughts, you know, those, the recommendations that you have, you know, are, are applicable for that too. Uh, yeah. And I'd also add the way I kind of see it is every, you know, there's different groups, but I would say for a lot of us, those challenging thoughts, those challenging experiences are pointers. If, so for someone who's, who's experiencing suicidality or suicidal thoughts, 
a part of you may need to die, but that doesn't mean that all of you needs to die. And so those thoughts, like those challenging experiences, they can also be pointers and guides and gifts into what is it, where do we need to change? Where do we need to shift? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, the death part, right. And this is something that we've, we've talked about in the past, just your relationship with death has changed. And I know this is a, this is a big topic that we can, we, we can get into, but uh, uh, let's get into it a little bit. You know, what, what, how has your relationship with death, with death changed over time? So much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I would say up until I was, uh, up until I was 20, up until I almost died myself, I was probably like most of the population in terms of just not really thinking about it. You know, obviously when people around me died, it was intense and it was so full on. But in terms of my own death, I didn't really spend time looking at that. And then it became this thing that haunted me for so for, for a while. So for me, the, my PTSD experience and the panic attacks that I would have was re-experiencing the moments that I was very close to death. And so um, for a while, it, it felt like it had broken me and I would never escape it. But eventually a shift happened. And I would say the sort of spiritual work was a really big part of that for me of looking at death as almost a tool or an ally or a friend. Um, And for me now I see it as my North star because we're all going to get there. It's going to happen. And so if we don't look at it, we're giving it power almost that fear of death, I think is sort of the root underneath so many different fears that we have. But now I, when I look at hard decisions or when I look at big risks or when I'm in these sort of big intense spots and I'm easily distracted by sort of some of the BS um, that we have in our lives, I, my North star question is, does this make me more ready to die? Mm. Um, And can I, that can sound a little bit morose uh, or, or morbid, but I, I see it differently. Um, to me, the question is, how can I live my life so fully uh, and so presently that if I'm lucky enough to many, many years from now in old age uh, have, have a death I can, where I can, I can sit and look back on my life and say, yeah, you know, I did what I came here to do. I'm ready to go. Um, and so I've taken so many risks and I've had the privilege to support me in doing that. Um, but I used to have so much fear around taking a lot of big risks, whether in like relationships uh, or like friendship or dating or job things or not fitting the box that I was supposed to fit in. Um, any of those things, wherever I, I come up against really deep fear, bringing that in helps almost clarify my vision. And, and I feel like now, because I think about death often, I live more. And so it's not about preparing for the end of our lives, um, although that's a part of it. To me, it really is, how do we live our lives so fully? There's, there's actually a, a subset of monks who their greeting to each other is, you will die soon, um, <laughs> right? And it's, you know, that's, that's not for me. I don't do that every time I greet anyone. I promise, <laughs> don't worry. Um, but I think being able to meditate on that and to know that there's an ending allows us to fill life more. You know, when we think about, uh, you know, when we think about the the holiday season, um, Christmas, I'm Jewish, or any other, you know, piece, right? Like that time of year is is so special because it's only once a year because we don't have it all the time. When we look at parents with young children, part of what makes it so precious 
is that it's finite, that they're going to grow out of it. And so remembering the finiteness of our existence allows us to fill it in a way um, that I think allows it to be so magical. So I think it's like, like most hard things, um, if we can change our relationship with it, it can be a tool and we can harness it um, to elevate us. Yeah, that, that's so powerful. I, I absolutely love that because, you know, using death as your North Star, I think that is so powerful and living, not looking at it as a morbid thing, but using it, you know, using it to live fully. I think it's the um, biggest anchor you can have in life. And there's so much yes in, in your share. And I absolutely love the way that you see it. Uh, and, it, and, it and, and it reflects back to me and brings that back uh, for me because it can death can you be used as a beautiful anchor and, and a North star. Uh, and a lot of people don't look at it that way, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's a reality we live in. You know, everyone has to die one day uh, and facing that truth head on. It's so important. And, you know, the perspective on it can shift your relationship entirely with death. Um, so I urge the audience, whoever is listening to sit down with that. You know, if you have a couple of minutes and you reflect on that, what is your relationship with death? Have you thought about death? Is that even a concept that you would entertain thinking about, you know, because it is something that we repress so much. Uh, so thank you for bringing that in, Charlie. I think it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, now we have a couple of minutes left and I can keep going all day with you with, <laughs> with the different topics you shared. Mutual, sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's, there's so many different topics and perhaps we'll do a future episodes where we'll, we'll explore some of the other things you mentioned, the you know, storytelling and some of the other gifts that you have that you share to the world. Uh, now, really quickly, you know, you are working on a current project with your documentary, right? So anything that you want to share about that? I know some of it, it's in the works. So anything you want to share uh, about that? And then, you know, if people want to watch that or find you, uh, you know, how, how can they reach you? But let's t start with the documentary piece and then uh, how can yeah. 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 And I can't go into too many details because we are, uh, we are still in progress. But I think for me, um, at a, at a higher level, I see storytelling as medicine. I think that the stories we tell, um, not, I think they do shape our reality. You know, what we, what we see and what we believe, um, has a massive effect on, on what reality looks like in our society. So for everything from diversity and inclusion in, in, in media, uh, to what are the types of stories we tell? And so, you know, when we talk about suicide, uh, usually we see stories of completed suicides. When we hear suicide, that's what we think. But the reality is for every one person that dies by suicide, 25 survive. Um, and a whole lot more than that never follow through on their plan. And so those are the stories that I think we need to see and are so powerful. And the research also shows that. Uh, it's called the Papageno effect. So while suicide contagion is a, is, is a thing, you know, there's a lot of studies and research looking at how when we have sensationalized stories of completed suicides, the rates can go up. Um, survivor stories are this incredible, incredible sort of piece of, you could say, storytelling entertainment, but also I see it as, as medicine and as power. These are our role models. When we talk about getting through hard times, um, Let's look at the people who've come back from that. Let's look at how they've done it. Um, and it's a whole diversity, right? Like this is, it affects every portion of our population, every part of society. And some people come back and thrive. And it's sort of the, you know, the, this incredible turning point where it, it is this giant bounce back. 
Um, and for some people, it can go up and down. And for some people, it is a daily challenge. There are people out there who struggle with suicidal thoughts every single day, and their lives are also valid. And so being able to see these people who've, who've come back from trying to die or wanting to die, um, I see them as our teachers. And so I'm really excited to be able to explore that. And when we look at, for example, something like cancer, uh, there's so much around cancer survivors, and that gives so much hope to the people who are struggling. But when we look at something like suicide, where those stories of hope can actually have the biggest impact on mortality and survival, it's also the area where those aren't being shown, where survivors are being are stigmatized or pressured. I, I hid my story for 14 years. Um, and so I'm really passionate about changing how we approach this as a society, where we can celebrate survivorship rather than stigmatizing it. And seeing these people as our teachers rather than having to constantly walk on eggshells. Um, and so, I, yeah, so I, I just get very, very excited um, about all of this. And I, you know, being a little, a little bit of the nerd that I am, <laughs> I love being able to say, okay, research and data and stories are meant to be together. Um, how, do we allow, how do we allow it to inform each other and to create this, um, this fun little bond? And so, so, yeah, so I feel again, kind of like that kid in a candy store feeling. Um, and I can sound very positive upbeat now, mind you, like when we're in those stories or when I'm doing crisis counseling, like I'm not always like chipper yee hee. Like sometimes <laughs> it's, sometimes we get into, into that serious hard space. But I think for me, it just feels like this is what I'm here to do and how lucky am I to be doing it. And I, I wouldn't recommend the path uh, that I that I took to get here. It was it was not easy on me. It was not easy on the people around me. Um, but where it's led me, you know, I would say I can look now and say, oh, the world's a better place because I decided to kill myself and because I changed my mind. Mm -hmm. And my valleys have are what set me up for my peaks. So. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly do just feel really grateful. Um, and sometimes I don't, um, and that's okay too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that, as you were sharing so much of that, you know, that's the word that kept coming up is thank you for going through what you've gone through and sharing, uh, your gifts through that way. You know, it's, it's truly a gift to the world in the same way, uh, in the same way that, um, you know, you're kind of describing it, right? So it's, it's truly beautiful. So, so I appreciate the work you're doing. And thank you for sharing your story on the podcast today. Uh, oh, it's this, this, it's this. absolutely my pleasure. And if anyone, you know, I think to take anything away from this, that idea of, I used to focus on the, the resume virtues, you know, the resume aspect of myself yeah. um, and bringing it back to death, you know, it shifted to being like, focus on the eulogy. Like, what do we, what do I want people to say about me when I'm gone, what's the legacy that I want to leave? Yeah. And to be able to make the shift from how do I want to be seen to how do I want to live has been the greatest gift. Um, and so I feel like that's a really big thing that we've connected on. And so also thank you for creating this space where we can really focus, okay, how do I want to live? Not just how do I want to be seen? Yeah, absolutely. And it's that's the common thread that we explored throughout the episode, right? It's you know, you've had valleys and you've, you've had, uh, you know, peaks and they continue, right. And, and, and the, and you continue to build that path for yourself, you know, circumstances change over time in life, but what's important is 
to your point, looking back, you know, as you think about death and, and you're, you know, being in your, I call it the rocking chair test, right? Like sitting in your rocking chair or, you know, in, in your deathbed, uh, if you could reflect back in your life, have you done everything that you really wanted to? Or do you have any regrets? And it's such a powerful anchor and the, and the journey continues, right? So thank you for sharing the journey thus far, uh, uh, Charlie. And, and I hope we speak, you know, in, in the 20 years, there's so much, no, I say that as in like going forward, but we'll continue to speak. <laughs> it won't be yeah. after 20 years, but hope, you know, as, hope as, you, yeah, as we move forward, you know, we look back and, you know, you have that much, that many more stories and hopefully, you know, not, not that many valleys and more peaks, uh, but, but, you know, that's the, the nature of life, right? So thank you again for sharing your story. And this is, you know, as I think about the, the people that I've spoken with, you know, you have such a powerful story in what you've gone through. Um, and I love that you've utilized you know, your values for, for your peaks and, and giving that gift to the world. So, uh, you know, as far as the documentary, is that how long is that process going to take? Like somebody wants to really see it or you don't know yet? Is that still, um, still so too no, early? I, it's still too early to say when, when things are going to be available, but, um, but I have a website and so that's, uh, people can find me on that. I'm on Instagram. I'm not like the most massive social media person. Um, but yeah, uh, I absolutely, and people can get in touch. Um, you know, if there are specific questions, um, there's like a contact form and I'm always happy, um, to, to answer questions and give feedback. Yeah. And your website. Is... Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's charliejaffe.com. So I spelled Charlie. I, growing up, I called it the girl way, uh, L Y, uh, <laughs> yeah. so C H A R L Y, uh, J A F F E, uh.com. Perfect. Perfect. Obviously I'll link that, but you know, anybody hearing wants to get in touch with Charlie, you know where to find her. Thank you again, Charlie, for the conversation today. And thank you for coming on. I'm sure we'll bring you back at some point and there's a lot more we'll have to explore. Uh, but thank you again. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I look forward to it. 